We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. You're listening to Founder Stories with Anouk and Barack. Brought to you by F2 Capital in partnership with IDC International Radio and No Camels. The first thing that we look at is the, is the team. And so it's the people. It's not even their specific expertise in the field. It's whether they're just phenomenal. Whether they're the bunch of people that I want to now work for, you know, seven to ten years. Whether these are people that I can trust with everything. Whether these are the kind of people that I believe that when it's going to get tough, they're going to only get better. That if they need to work harder, I don't need to tell them that that uh, when they need to drop everything they did at this, uh, up to this point and embrace something new and wake up in the morning and, and be completely convinced that that's the right direction. Hi, and welcome to Founder Stories. Today on the show, our guest is Gigi Levy, who followed his razor-sharp instincts, honed as an Apache helicopter fighter pilot, to lead public companies and become one of Israel's most respected investors and advocates for diversity in the workforce. Gigi. Great to have you with us. Great being here. I want to take a step back. You're a great business leader, and I think about where I started my business career. It was probably about 10 years old on a street corner in Youngstown, Ohio, selling baseball cards. I'm wondering where you got started. Was there a Gigi Levy lemonade stand? Well, for, clearly you can't sell baseball cards in Israel. That right. wouldn't be a great business. Uh, and there wasn't a lemonade stand, but I think I work, have been working ever since um, I was probably around 10, delivering newspapers and flowers. And then uh, for many years, uh, I was a tennis instructor. So I used to be a, a decent tennis player comp- competing for a few years. And then uh, uh, I hurt my knee, and so I turned to be an instructor, and that was a great source of income as a kid. Uh, and then, you know, the military, like everybody here. So I, I, th- I don't really remember any period in which I was not working, so... Uh, but nothing too innovative at that age. I was uh, actually collecting the cash, going home and washing the dollar bills and then blow drying them crisp. <laughs> My sister never lets me forget. Was money a priority for you back then? I came from a family that was not very well off, although we were never missing anything that was important uh, for, for my parents. Uh, everything that had to do with education or everything that had to do with extracurriculum activity like that, there was always money. For um, but I did grow up in an environment where uh, uh, there were people with more money. And so while it wasn't really the main driver, it was always in the back of my mind. Uh, I remember uh, as a kid uh, having one of those discussions, uh, how much money do you want, right? How much money do you want to, to feel rich? And uh, one of my friends keeps reminding me that at the age of uh, kind of 14, I defined it very simply. I said, uh, you know, People will not understand it today because of things like Spotify. But I said, I want to be able to buy every music this guy wants. I want to be able to go to any movie I want or buy the DVD. I want to buy every book that I want to read. I want to be able to go once a week to any restaurants I ever want to go to without having to think twice about it. And I want to go twice a year on vacation to the most amazing places in the world. If I have that, I feel incredibly rich. Um, so now, you know, now it's like uh, it's $10 for Spotify. Uh, and another, another $10 for Kindle Unlimited, uh, Netflix subscription. Food still costs and traveling still does, but um, that was always my definition. So it was never about the money. It was about the things that money can enable from that perspective. And I think that's still the case. 
It, it's funny because I remember a long time ago when Barack went away with you, you were both working at 888 and uh, you went to Ukraine and we were talking about, you know, what's really rich today, like in today's terms. And you said something like, if you have $20 million, you're rich. Is, did, I, did I say that? I, yeah. I think, I think. I don't know uh, if it was liquid no, or no, illiquid. I, 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 I assume, because I never talk about money, I assume that you asked a very specific question, and so I had to give you a quantifiable answer. Uh, but I try to never think about it like this, and I also think that, uh, so I've got many friends that over the years, you know, people that made billions and people that, uh, that don't have almost any. Um, and I think that, um, you know, without sounding too cliche, I think that you're as rich as you believe you are, uh, up to ab above a certain threshold, of course, that you can buy your kids what they need and you can get the health care that you need and so on. But the reality is that I know people that have $20 million that feel incredibly uh, poor because they hang around with people that their uh, jet expense a year is, uh, is that. And I know people that have $5 million and feel incredibly wealthy because it's more than they ever thought they're going to have and they live a great life. And so I don't, I don't put a specific number on that, and I don't think anybody should. You seem to be one of those people who can accomplish 10 times what someone else can in the same amount of time. Where do you think that comes from? Is it genes? Is it your environment? Is it your ambition? Is it a certain type of work ethic? Or are you just actually part robot? <laughs> so the, the question about being part robot did, did come up a few times from people, not from my wife, but almost close to that. Um, <clears throat> I think that I do quite a bit of things in different fields, and uh, a lot of it is just my, uh, I call it, when people ask me why, I define it as uh, greed, but not greed for money, but greed for excitement and greed for doing. Uh, when I see, uh, so last year, for example, uh, you know, I have a fund and I'm an investor, but last year I had this idea uh, for a company that I, that I thought should exist. Um, And it killed me that I couldn't find anybody doing it. And I couldn't, it was a good idea. And I couldn't find anybody that was doing this idea. And so I said, let's find a team that's going to do it. Couldn't find a team that's going to do it. And then eventually I called my partners and said, guys, do you remember that when we set up the fund, uh, I said that if I stumble across such an idea, I may end up just being the CEO and doing it? And they said, yeah, but you're kidding. I said, well, I'm going to do it now. And so... Um, and what, um, what came out of that startup? Uh, so I was very, very lucky because... Uh, I got an amazing team of people to work with me on this startup. Uh, it's called Tectonic. We raised around $10 million for it uh, from the get-go, which is the benefit of me being older and, and doing it. And then uh, I tried, uh, I had to find a CEO to run it, uh, but I was not going to compromise finding the wrong person. So uh, uh, luckily enough, um, one of the investors that invested in the company, which is uh, Avi Zevri from uh, Viola, um, gave me an idea of somebody Uh, and that was just a perfect match. It's uh, one of the co-founders of Akamai, uh, Jonathan Zelig. And um, Jonathan clearly has, for this particular company, is the, the best pedigree in the world because he founded a distributed computing platform, and this is another one of those. Um, it took me a bit of time. Jonathan agreed, and now I'm the chairman, and he's the CEO, so I'm, I'm back in normal life and hmm. not having you know, 10 jobs at the same time. But it's about the greed to do more. It's about this, this feeling that I've got to create, and that's one thing. The second thing is... I think I'm fairly good with uh, time management. Uh, a lot of it I've found over the years is, uh, is methodology and a lot of it is discipline. So the methodology comes out of things like uh, looking at every meeting I have and saying, should these be more than 30 minutes? 
And, you know, while I don't want to insult anybody with a 30-minute meeting, the reality is that most meetings don't need to be more than 30 minutes. And is so, this interview going to be more than 30 minutes? That depends on you guys. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you started in, uh, in, a, in a kind of boring industry, telecom and telecom equipment and software. Uh, just, Was uh, it that right. path of needing to create that brought you maybe to the entertainment industry in the world of games? I, I don't think so. I think that as a kid, I uh, maybe the most entrepreneurial thing that I did was that I had my Commodore 64 and I used to code games. And we used to sell these games, right? We used to, you wanted your face in a game. Anyhow, it was only a few pixels, so we could tell you it's your face. We, <laughs> we coded it in and we sold it. Um, and so I, I did, um, I wasn't a, a gamer and in the industry before that, but I never thought I'm going to work in this. Uh, and then after three years of running uh, a division in Amdocs, which is like you know, a few thousand people and very boring B2B sales, I just felt that I need something else. I had an agreement with my wife back then that the minute that we find out that she's pregnant, I resign because I was basically traveling every week. And so the, the concept was that it's going to take me like six months to, to get away from the tentacles that hold me, which was very true because I, I actually presented the project to the rest of the management team two days before I left. So I was working to the last moment. So when we found out she's pregnant, I, uh, I resigned. I started looking for something else and basically came and offered to run 888. And 888 was uh, probably the last company in the world I ever thought I'm going to run. First of all, because I'm not, a, I'm not a gambling person. Again, not undermining anybody that's dealing with it, but it's not my area of... Uh, it doesn't excite me that much, gambling in general. People may not recall, but that was the number one internet company in Israel at the time. And so for me, the opportunity was not that much in, in games or in gambling. The opportunity was to get into the, what was the most sophisticated internet company out of Israel. And Does that remain true today that if you cut your teeth in the gaming industry, you're set for internet business generally? Uh, so it's a great question. Now let's separate for a second gaming as in gambling companies, uh, online gambling and, and games companies. And I think, uh, <clears throat> I always say, and I, and I still think that games companies are probably the hardest companies to run in the world. And they're the companies that take the lean startup methodology and the fast iterations uh, and the need to constantly optimize, literally not once a quarter, not once a month, not once a week, not once a day, but basically test multiple things every day. They take it to the extreme. Uh, I think I told you that, Barack, but um, I, up till now, every once in a while, when I have a CEO in another company that I think is not moving fast enough, I ask a favor from one of my gaming CEOs to take that CEO in as in like an intern for a day or two so that they can see what fast really means. It's all about speed, right? We can, we can talk about that. And uh, they come back from the games company shocked. They're like, hmm. these guys, they're just changing everything all the time. And it's true. Uh, of course, there's a reason for that. The games industry has more data per customer than any other industry, right? So I invest in an e-commerce company and you look at a games company. And in a games company, you have uh, an average today of 12 sessions a day. Every session is like, uh, you know, eight to 10 minutes. And in every session, the customer is making around a few hundred choices. Each one of them is a data point. Did I go here? Did I go there? Did I buy? Did I not buy? Did I press this? Did I battle against you or against Anouk? What, what did I do? All these data points times 12 times a day, times every day of the week, times 52 weeks, gives you all the data. All the data you can now analyze and learn from. If you compare that to an e-commerce company, uh, you know, then in most e-commerce companies, the customer buys something every few months. The touch point is like a few clicks. And we only know what they looked at and whether they bought or not. That's all we know. We don't know anything about anything else. Gigi, I see you 
looking at me and looking at your phone with another eye. And I remember you told me what it was like to fly a helicopter as a fighter pilot. And for a while after wearing the helmet, one eye went one way and another went another. Can you take us to the cockpit for a second? Yeah, and how does that so, thinking and training apply now? So first of all, it's uh, that very strange thing you said actually happens, but it doesn't happen in every uh, in every cockpit. So uh, I, uh, I flew Apaches, which are these... Uh, American attack helicopters, clearly highly enhanced by the Israeli Air Force. They're not the same as the American ones. I had just had to say that. Uh, but um, you basically fly them with one eye looking through a thermal imaging system and the other eye looking out throughout the dark night. The intent is that the eye that with the thermal system actually sees everything that's happening outside, but the thermal system doesn't see things like missiles shot at you because that's not... It is thermal, but the light is more obvious. So your other eye now looks outside and looks at the different instruments in the cockpit. At the beginning, what happens is that your brain starts looking at different things, and it, it's like you feel like somebody like a lobotomy, something like cutting through your brain. But over time, you get really used to it. And so you find out that you can basically, I'll try it now. I'm not sure. <laughs> I haven't done this in a while. But you can actually look at two people in two different places uh, with each eye. Fairly scary. Um, and after you stop flying, it, it basically goes away, I think. Uh, but it was a crazy period. And, um, you know, we can talk for hours about the Israeli army and why uh, the Israeli army in general is... Uh, it's sort of a hotbed for innovation that then flows into Israeli high tech. And I think that there's many things in the structure of the army that make this inherent that don't exist elsewhere. Uh, for example, you know, kids go into these units like Shmone Matayim, A200 that everybody hears of. Um, and people say, how come they're productive so quick? Like they're 18 year old and they're productive after a year. How can it be? And the answer is very simple. The, the military is getting them for free. For, if you go to A200, it's like for four years. You get them for free for four years. If you're going to take them through normal training, of computer science that takes around four years, then you need to release them immediately after. That's not good use of the free resource you got. So this entire unit is geared toward taking these young kids and making them incredibly efficient and incredibly useful after less than a year. Now, the Israeli Air Force clearly is not necessarily the place where you study how to code or how to build products, but it does have something incredibly unique, which is a mentality of, um, of the methodology of briefing, doing, debriefing, learning, and then all over again, briefing, doing, debriefing. And um, the first flight you do, the first question is, what do you want to do? How do you want to do it? Then you go to, you fly, you come back, and the first question is, okay, what went wrong? What, went, what was good? What was bad? What could we have done better? And um, it is only in the Israel Air Force that a perfect flight is considered to be a bad thing. Because a perfect flight means that you studied nothing. If you say that it was perfect, first of all, none of us is ever perfect. But second thing, if you waste the taxpayer's money by flying an hour in which you didn't really learn anything, then that's a bad thing. And so you find yourself before a briefing, when everything went well, really sitting down with your team and saying, guys, what could we have done better? So we were on time on this, but maybe we could have, you know, we, we could have made it more perfect. Maybe there was a thing on the way that almost got us uh, distracted that we could have done better. And so... This is a mentality that I think uh, I took from the Air Force for myself and then many entrepreneurs that I know uh, that are Air Force pilots as well, which is this very open view of everything you do. Speaking of mistakes, there's something called fuck-up nights in Israel where people just come together and talk about their worst fuck-ups. What would you say was your worst business fuck-up? Yeah, I don't think we have time for all of them. <laughs> 
I think I made fuck ups on literally every business I ran or founded. And what I like to think, and this is what I tell my uh, the founders that I invest in when they come back to me with uh, you know really depressed about mistakes, I tell them it's not about not making the mistake the first time. It's about not making the mistake the second time because everybody makes mistakes. And, you know, it's the same thing with, with educating your kids. Even if I end up brain dumping everything I know on my kids, there's going to be new mistakes that they're going to make. There's actually a, there's a, a mathematical theorem, which is my favorite one. It's called the Godel theorem, a German mathematician. And what he basically proved is that doesn't matter how perfect the system, a mathematical system you're going to you're going to build, there's always going to be at least one exception. And then if you create a special rule to cater for that exception, you just created another exception. So I think that you know there's going to be mistakes everywhere. I think that early on in my career, I made, uh, if I need to characterize it, I made lots of arrogance mistake, thinking that I know better, thinking that I'm better than others, thinking that I could achieve more uh, than what others could, and and that kind of hit me on various fronts. Later on, I made uh, lots of mistakes in hiring. I think that I try now to uh, to avoid, uh, you know, some really core principles like, uh, for example, um, hiring for skills rather than for attitude, right? I think that as a younger manager, it was very easy for me to look at somebody and say, wow, look at his, look at his CV or her CV. It looks so good. You know, everything that I have on my list is here. Okay, great. We hire them. Even if their attitude is not great, even if their DNA is not great, we'll get around that. And the reality is that you can teach skills, but you can almost never change attitudes. So I made mistakes like that. I made mistakes in um, creating a team of individuals rather than a holistic team. So, you know, you get a bunch of alpha leaders and they're together in the room, but they all want to do the same thing. What about hiring for principal? You actually hired quite a lot of women when you were CEO of 888, which was, you know, which is something that now more companies are doing on principal. Of course, a lot are still not doing. Is that something that you believe in? You know, we need to fix the situation. You know, I have a girl and uh, and I see how in today's world, horribly, it is still not the equal opportunity that should be. And it just, you know, just upsets me, even if I had no girls, but just upsets me. And that needs to be fixed, and that's, that's okay. The second thing, that the other perspective, which I think is a lot more important, is the fact that I actually truly believe that diverse companies, be it women or, you know, or minorities, minorities or anything else, I think that diverse companies are actually better companies. And I really think I know why that's the case. So the first thing is that, which is very trivial, is that the talent pool is very limited in general, uh, everywhere around the world, but Israel in particular, we're a small country. And so if I am to say, uh, I want to hire uh, a chief product officer, but I'm only going to hire men, then I just cut out 50% of the people that are relevant. And if I now say, I don't want, God forbid, you know, any minority or I don't want anybody with a sexual preference or anything, I end up with having to choose the person from rather than the 100% talent pool, then to 10% talent pool. So I'm, I've just done something stupid. So that's one thing. But more than that, and that's the essence, and this is where I see people not yet understanding, is that I truly believe from seeing it over the years that a diverse organization is a better organization. Not because they think that the organization does good. Not because they think that it's a, that it's a liberal or a, a, you know, or egalitarian organization. Not just, not just because of that, although that's important as well. It's simply because that homogenic teams don't challenge each other. You know, to explain this, I always like to to give an explanation. So, you know, I, in my political opinions, I am more left-wing than right-wing. Uh, if I have to go and lecture about my political opinions to a bunch of Meretz voters, 
left-wing voters, I don't need to prepare. I'm going to go on stage and I'm going to get applauses and that's going to be very easy because it's, it's very homogenic. My opinions are their opinion. I speak, they applaud, everything. everybody's happy. If I now need to go to a right-wing opinion crowd and I now need to convince them in something, you can bet yourself that I'm going to prepare. I'm going to read what they think. I'm going to think what works, what doesn't work. I'm going to try and put myself in their own shoes to understand why they think. And so I just made myself better by going to a non-homogeneous environment. And the same thing happens in a company because if, if we're an e-commerce company and we're now you know, only men that are building the product and all of us think the same thing and we all came from the same area in the army and we all came from similar social economical background and we all think that things should happen one way, then everything's going to be really easy. We're all going to agree and you know the arguments are going to be really minor. On, But if now we have there a bunch of different people with different backgrounds, with different ways of looking at life, and now they're going to challenge each other because everybody has a different point of view. Everybody comes more prepared. The outcome is going to be 10x better. And I know it sounds like a theory, but I've actually seen this in companies. And I truly believe that diverse companies are better companies. I think that Facebook is one of the first companies in the world where you actually see this. Because Facebook, um, unlike Google, which is an engineering-led company, Facebook is a product-led company now. Because the funnel for engineers is usually guided by biases that exist already. Meaning that to fix the funnel for engineers, we need to go all the way back to kindergarten. However, the funnel for product managers could also be from social sciences, could also be from design, could be from various other places. And so suddenly, a product-led company has a lot more women business leaders than any other company. It's funny that you talk about Facebook in, in, in that context, because I actually look at Facebook from the content side. And in the content side, you know, there's this huge backlash against Facebook that basically what it creates is actually an echo chamber where they show you the content that your friends are posting and they keep showing you what you want to hear and they keep wanting to yeah. introduce you to the merits audience that you already know and, you know, for you to feel good, like everybody's thinking like you. And actually from the content side, it's, it's kind of the opposite. The reality is that Facebook got to where it is today by following no principle of trying to do anything negative. It happened by following a principle of let's let the algorithms optimize. And so being that what Facebook needs to optimize for is usage or essentially our time and being that their business model relies on us spending more time in the platform, then they basically told the algorithms in double brackets, let's see what makes Gigi stay more. And what they find out is that, which is fairly intuitive now that we think about it, uh, which is the same reason that I have an, an, an Arad subscription and I don't have a Yated Neeman subscription, which is the religious newspaper, is that I like reading what, what resonates like. with what I like. Gigi, you're, you're clearly a generalist. You, you know a lot about many topics. You invest in travel to e-commerce to health as opposed to, say, a cyber specialist. So just tell us, how do you approach it if someone walked in this door pitching uh, outer space technology? Uh, the first thing that we look at is the, is the team. And so it's the people. It's not even their specific expertise in the field. It's whether they're just phenomenal, whether they're the bunch of people that I want to now work for you know, seven to 10 years, whether these are people that I can trust with everything. These are the kind of people that I believe that when it's going to get tough, they're going to only get better that if they need to work harder, I don't need to tell them that, that uh, when they need to drop everything they did at this, uh, up till this point and embrace something new and wake up in the morning and, and be completely convinced that that's the right direction, these are the kind of people. And the second thing is that um, I have a pre 
conditioning to what fields I like and don't like. And uh, I think that in a way you can look at them and part of those that I like are those that I really understand, like, you know, like games or internet, marketplaces, networks, and so on. Uh, and also SaaS potentially. Part of it is that I'm attracted to things that I believe could be huge, but I don't understand anything. And, and I actually, I'm attracted because I want to learn. And that would include, the, I don't know, blockchain a few years ago that I, you know, when I just got into it or synthetic biology a few years ago when I didn't understand anything in it. In that second stage, I test them on the core understanding that I can still have. And then at this point, if I believe that I want to proceed, I would get in experts that would help me really understand whether the biology or the science works. And that worked for me so far. The beauty of it, of course, is that every such process, I end up being slightly smarter on the field and in field. And so after doing this now as a hobby, investing for probably 15 years, and as a real job from 2011, so what is now, eight years, by now, I've, I've become much smarter in many fields. Uh, and so... How uh, many companies have you backed by now? That's a number that we... Uh, you don't, don't yeah, share? Yeah, I'll, I'll okay, share. I'll, no, no, I'll, I'll share it. I share it. So I, I backed personally something like uh, 125 companies. Over 15 years. I know it sounds like a crazy number, but it's over 15 years. And did your wife think you were crazy, at least in the beginning? We were not together when I started. You know, it was uh, already made fact when we got together. And I don't think that she ever knew the number, and I don't, <laughs> and I don't think that I really shared the number. It's a bad um, habit. Yeah. Uh, and then we had NFX as an accelerator, and that invested in something like 80 companies, and then NFX as a fund invested in another probably kind of 30 by now. So it's yeah. 230, 240, okay. yeah, a lot of companies. And Israel is such a small place that you inevitably end up backing your friends. How has that played out for you? That's a great question. I um, So I never backed um, a close friend. I so was, all those guys out there who think they're your close friends. <laughs> <laughs> we have news. I, I was, uh, yeah, I, I was about to say that I don't want you to think about it the way you just did. But um, actually many of the people I invested in became good friends after I invested in them. So some of my best, best friends today are people that I got to know through investing in them and seeing what phenomenal human beings they are. The few people that are f more friends that I invested in, some of them work well, and those that didn't work well actually never really heard the friendship. I think that what happened is that I was lucky to be successful enough and understand the game enough to really believe, truly believe that failure is an inherent part of this game. I truly think that if you cannot really, really, really grasp and really stomach that there will not be success without failure simply because tech innovation by design is never going to succeed more than you know one times out of ten and if you're the best investor in the world it's going to be one time out of five and if you're incredibly lucky it's going to be one time out of three but at one time out of three that's going to make you the best investor in the world there's still two failures for every success and you're also going to meet the failures way before you meet the, the successes because the success takes an average 10 years and the failure takes an average two and a half three years because i see people that come in and I, I tell them, look, you've got, you know, allocate that much capital and uh, make sure that you invest in at least in, in 10 companies so that statistically you have the chance to do that and assume that you've already just lost the first nine. And after I tell them everything... This is making my job way easier next time I come home to a nuke with some bad news. <laughs> yeah, and, and then, you know, even after saying all of that, the first company they lose and, they, you know, they come to me and they're half crying and, uh, and I say, well, you know, we, we said that's going to happen. They say, yeah, but I didn't think it's going to happen to me. What it does. Uh, and so once you believe in this, you're not going to lose friendship over it. 
How do you think of uh, work-life balance? You're here, you're tan, you're wearing a necklace and cool beaded bracelets. I, Your wife and I follow each other on Instagram and I see you are away partying. And yet she also once told me you're traveling all the time for work and you seem like you're thinking a million miles per hour. How do you balance it? And obviously you have three kids. I have and three kids, yeah. I have three amazing kids. So first of all, again, um, I think that people should not really make the mistake of thinking that investors have the same burden levels as entrepreneurs, right? When people, you know, the, one of the things I, I, I really don't like is investors that think that once they gave money, they are equal partners in this business because what they gave is money. And the people that give 27 hours a day and don't sleep at night and have responsibility on their shoulders is the entrepreneurs. And so as an ex-entrepreneur, what I remember is that the investors are the ones joining the ride, not the ones actually riding. And so as an investor, it's 10x better and easier to create work-life balance. My position today as an investor allows me to do things that I was not able to do in the past. So that's one thing. Um, I work a lot. Every once in a while, uh, I sit with my parents and... Uh, They ask me, is it a busy period? And I say, yeah, you know, I really work hard now. And my father looks at me and says, you don't work hard. <laughs> you maybe work a lot, but, you know, working hard, I don't see the, you know, I don't see the heavy burdens that you're carrying in the sun and in the rain, right? So you're working a lot, that's fine. And I think that I do work many hours, but I have the luxury of deciding what hours these are. And being that I work a lot with Silicon Valley, a lot of my days are nights, actually, a lot of my nights are days. Um, and so that allows me to take... Uh, two, three days a week and be with the kids in the afternoon when they want me. <laughs> Now, they're, they're already 10, 12, 10 and 8. They don't always have the time for me, but at least uh, when, I, when, I, you know, when I'm around, that I'm around. Uh, I try not to work that much over the weekend so that I can spend time with them over the weekends. And we do take a few family vacations a year so that, and in these vacations, I try to be with them as much as I can. I, uh, every year, I take one or two, or two of them on one-on-one -on -one trips. This could be like, you know, two, three days. I'm, I'm a big believer. I read a book uh, a while back about uh, the, the difference between giving kids fake time and real time. And fake time is that when you're around, but you're actually busy with other things. And real time is when you're with them, but you're 100% with them. And what this basically said, it said that uh, in trying to measure the impact, then the ratio between fake time and real time is probably one to 10 when you look at the actual efficiency, which means that if you spend half an hour with your kid real time, meaning you don't do anything else, you're focused on, on the kid, all you do is be with the kid, no phone, no internet, nothing, that is probably worth like five hours of fake time. And then on top of it, I also make sure that, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, work hard, play harder. And, you know, I'm lucky enough to have a wife, a companion, on my road, a great friend who, um, who basically also has a career uh, working in a startup, running business development and building uh, real estate and doing a bunch of things and sitting on the board of Bacheva. Um, and she's as busy as I am, but she's the one that keeps reminding us that we also need to take time off also together. And so, you know, we would go a few times a year for a weekend, just the two of us and, or, or with friends. Um, we would go out probably twice a week every week and you know even at the toughest times we try to insist on doing that you know parties and friends <laughs> and everything so it gives me the energy it gives me the energy to keep pushing uh, on every other front Gigi if I were on a game show and I was stuck on a question and they gave me one lifeline call one person you'd be the guy 
And I remember when my dad was sick and I needed a, a private jet to fly him from Ohio to Tel Aviv. I indeed called you and you had the number within uh, 30 minutes. The number, name of the service of a guy who would take care of us. Who's your go-to guy? Uh, I don't think I have one go-to guy. I think I have, um, I have a bunch of go-to guys in different fields. So, you know, uh, if I need something incredibly luxurious in Europe, I've got a friend who's really, really, really good at that. If I need to know which party to go to, I've got a guy for that. I, I don't have one go-to guy. What's the top three things on your bucket list? Wow. First of all, I don't have a bucket list. Whenever I have something that I really want to do, then I try to do it. And I try to do it sooner rather than later. It's not that I've done everything, not even close to that, but um, I really don't have anything that I yearn to do that I just don't say I'm going to do it. Next year, I'm going to climb the Kilimanjaro with my daughter. That's something that I always wanted to do, and she fell in love with the concept, so we're doing, we're doing this next year. It sounds like planet Earth might just be a little too small for you. I was invited by somebody <laughs> to join on a Virgin Galactic flight. And? Uh, and I haven't yet decided what I'm going to do. I always wanted to be an astronaut. That's how I got eventually to be a pilot. But I'm just not sure about Virgin Galactic at this point. They have a queue, and I think it was in a too early spot in the queue for me to feel confident. This is a true yet. story. Before this interview, I told Anouk, I got to ask him about Virgin Galactic. I got a feeling because it's on my bucket list, and here you go. Yeah, I think that before, uh, you know, still in our time, Uh, space travel at this level is going to be something that almost everybody can do. Remember, it's not really going out to space. It's going uh, only to the edge of the atmosphere. And it's fun and everything. And I always wanted to do it, and I will do it. I'll just wait for it to be a little bit safer and more commercial. You're on the board of an Israeli-Palestinian organization called MEET, and formerly on an, uh, also part of an organization called LATET. Tell us about them, and why are you drawn to them? I was on the board of La Tête, which is this amazing organization that uh, had a very tough time recruiting me at the beginning because I'm this big, you know, let's give them, uh, you know, let's teach them how to fish rather than give them fish to eat. And then the guy that founded the organization was an amazing Israeli-French guy called Gilles Darmon. He took me on a tour and showed me the level of poverty. And he and, yeah, and he said, you know, uh, I, I agree with you in general, but uh, you've got to agree with me that you can't teach anybody how to fish if they don't have any food to eat. And so I joined that, and, and I was part of that for a few years. And then as I decided that I need to switch, because I think that after a few years in everything, like in a job, in a, I, I needed a, to find a new cause, I did a process that I did in the past with a bunch of my companies, which is uh, let's kind of strategize, and I'm s sorry again for making it sound a bit, uh, a bit kind of anal. And, robotic. Uh, yeah, robotic. <laughs> uh, but I, I asked myself, where do I think I can make the biggest impact? And so I, I kind of, it kind of figured to me that almost everything I want to change in Israel uh, or in the world, but let's start with Israel, I can basically start changing by focusing on education. And so I started looking at a bunch of organizations, and one of them, which is uh, one of the organizations I'm most involved in, is an organization called MEET, Middle Eastern Entrepreneurs of Tomorrow. It's been around for 14 years. Uh, every year we take 120 kids, half Palestinian, half Israelis, half boys, half girls, And we give them a three-year program of computer science, entrepreneurship, and something called deeper understanding, which is our, uh, our curriculum for uh, understanding the narrative of the other side. We take them at 14. It's like one full summer boarding school, a day a week for the entire year, another summer, another week, another summer, at the end of which there's an alumni program. 
we have uh, close to a thousand alumni today we you know we have a four thirty under thirty we have people kids and they're not kids anymore they're in government in business and, and one at nfx and one in nfx exactly so uh My uh, associate in NFX is uh, the phenomenal young, well, younger than me for sure, uh, but young uh, uh, individual uh, called Chaima Sharif. Uh, she's a MEET graduate. I got to know her through MEET. Uh, she's from East Jerusalem, uh, graduated with distinction from her undergrad and master's in the Technion, uh, was a, a hotshot in BCG for a few years. And when I thought about who I want to get into NFX to be somebody I'm going to work with in every day, I couldn't think about anybody better than that. Clearly not that many women in our industry, sadly, in, in venture capital. Definitely no Palestinians. So we now have Palestinian uh, women in NFX. I'm incredibly proud of that. So meat is one of these things, and I think it's, um, it's a very hopeful thing that, that helps me believe that we're going to have a better future here because these kids, when they go out, they don't necessarily change their political views. But they truly believe that they can talk to each other instead of fighting. And, you know, a few years ago at the Gaza war, uh, we had uh, an amazing occurrence where uh, kids were writing things on Facebook and they were all Facebook friends. And the Israelis were writing how horrible is, is, are the Palestinians. The Palestinians were writing how bad Israel is. And uh, one of the kids actually, a uh, Palestinian, wrote... To everybody, this is not the meet way. I suggest that we meet in person and talk about hmm. it. And so there were like 30 kids that met and, you know, they were crying and, and shouting and speaking. And then they came out of it after a few hours, uh, not necessarily thinking that the other side is right, but understanding the other side and hugging and wishing that there would be no war and going back and becoming like, a, a, you know, a, 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 having a thooting effect on their, on their environment. And so I truly believe that meet is one of these organizations that's going to change the region. Another one is an organization called Kamatek, which I, I was lucky enough to be uh, one of their first supporters. Two uh, ultra-Orthodox kids that are doing an amazing job of letting ultra-Orthodox kids get into Israeli high-tech through education and then through placing them in companies and then through investing in their companies and getting their companies mentorship and support from non-ultra-Orthodox founders. And uh, I think when we started it, the data showed that there were uh, four startup companies led by ultra-Orthodox, and now there's uh, more than 150. You know, once I decided that I want to raise my kids here and I want to live here, which, you know, it's not always an easy, an easy decision. We can all go and live wherever we want. You guys came to Israel, um, but you could have decided to go anywhere else in the world if you wanted. Uh, but once I decided that this is where I want to raise my kids, then, you know, it's my obligation to try and make this the best place in the world. Speaking of communication and uh, speaking with each other, you have definitely spent more than half an hour talking to us. And you said before that that is kind of the bar for are we are we interesting enough so i'm, I'm very grateful that you spent almost an hour i can continue uh, talking forever speaking with, with us thank you so much okay thanks guys thanks bye founder stories is brought to you by f2 capital in partnership with idc international radio and no camels subscribe now on your favorite podcast app <laughs>